Well, I must uh, warn you that this morning's sermon is a, a little bit more theological than what you are perhaps used to. Uh, that may worry some of you, or may excite some of you, I don't know. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to put on a nice suit today because I thought, you know, at least I'm showing uh, that I'm taking this uh, as seriously as I expect you to take it as you listen. You need to be at your best. So I thought, you should be at your best, Mark. Uh, and I have prepared, and I have uh, thought, and meditated, and prayed, and I've come to the conclusion that uh, this is going to be a taxing sermon, intellectually, spiritually, and the rest, at least Lord willing. So you have been warned, is what I'm saying. Uh, there are some sermons you can sit back, relax a little bit, and you know, they seem to flow nicely, but you're going to need to be alert, because what we're dealing with are fundamental truths, fundamental truths that uh, evidently Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, did not know about, but should have known about. Now remember, there are lots of places where Christ chastises people in the Scriptures for not knowing the Word of God, even after His resurrection. They did not know that the Son of Man, that the Christ, had to suffer many things be crucified and be raised from the dead. And as we look back in light of the completed scriptures upon these things, it, it looks clear to us. But remember, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, the New Testament hasn't been written. So when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and rebukes him, what is he rebuking him for? He's rebuking him for not understanding the truths of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in terms of the Old Testament Scriptures and in terms of the New Testament Scriptures, there are some themes that occur over and over again, and sometimes these themes are, are explicit or implicit, but they drive at fundamental truths of who God is and who we are. So what you see often is the concept of, of death and life, of God giving life where there is death, of death and resurrection, of new birth being connected to God's power. So even going right back to the beginning, we could look at Adam in the garden being put asleep, and as he enters into a new life when he is awoken, all of a sudden his existence changes because now he relates not simply in terms of his relationship to God, but in relationship to the bride, his wife. And that was meant to be a relationship whereby they would produce many offspring, many godly children, and subdue the earth. Now that doesn't happen, and after that, what you find are the effects of sin and death. And God uses death as a means whereby to bring life. And you get hints of that. So Abraham is at Mount Moriah sacrificing Isaac, and that is referred to as a type of resurrection. There is an apparent death and life experience. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. How did Abraham know that? Except that he believed God. And the author of Hebrews says, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. You can even look at the life of Joseph, in relation to Jacob, Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. He believed that Joseph was dead, and Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers and his father, and it's as though he's been received back from the dead. Jonah enters into a death-like experience 
and then he is brought back to serve God. And then you get to other passages like Ezekiel, and we read Ezekiel chapter 37 earlier, where there is death, where there's lifelessness, where there's bones, and Ezekiel is to prophesy, and it is God, by the power of his Spirit, who brings about resurrection life. And it is, and I hope you are understanding what I'm saying, it is corporate resurrection life that is brought to Israel. Israel was dead. Ezekiel prophesies, Israel is given life. And this life comes from the earth. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, there's a verse that says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. There's a birth that happens from the earth, and it's connected to resurrection life. And that happens at the end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Same idea, the earth bringing forth the dead to be raised to life or to judgment. So that when you get to Romans chapter 8, this isn't really a surprise, because the creation has been waiting with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, and the language that Paul uses is the language of being in the pains of childbirth. That there is a birth that takes place in the earth whereby the sons of God are revealed. So when you go back to the Old Testament, what you find is that very often there are emphases that you need to pay attention to, especially in Genesis where there are barren wombs, there are dead wombs. And these dead Wombs are places where God then is able by His power to bring about life. What example do we have? We have the example of Sarah that we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 11. Sarah herself received what? Power to conceive. Even when she was past age. It was a miracle. It was power from God. Since she considered Him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, her womb was as good as dead, Abraham was as good as dead, were born what? Descendants as many as the stars of the heaven. There was a new birth that happened from the womb of Sarah that was dead. God brought forth life. Does this happen again? Absolutely. Rebecca, in chapter 25, after Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was what? Barren. Her womb was dead, and the Lord granted his prayer, and she conceived. It was God who gave life to her womb. And then you have Rachel in chapter 29 and 30. It's actually quite a sad story because Rachel sees that Leah is giving birth, producing offspring, and she says, give me children or I die. She was barren. She is given a child, and actually that means what? that she would die, ironically, through that birth. There is death and there is life. There is death and there is resurrection. The Hebrew midwives are another example. You just need to leave Genesis, go to chapter 1 of Exodus. And the Hebrew midwives are really described as those who I think, when they were protecting the Israelite firstborn from death, again, death and life, you get to verse 21 and all of a sudden, their faithfulness 
is rewarded by God. And I think the Hebrew midwives who were once barren are now, in verse 21, able to give birth, which is what they did. And so Israel goes into Egypt, very small, insignificant. They come out of Egypt with new life. They come out as a a new child. They are called a child of God. God will be their father. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. Hannah, her prayer... In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, she says, after she has received the blessing of being able to give birth, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. There is death and there is life. And that was Hannah's rejoicing. You could look at Elisha and the Shunammite woman, and she sees that he has the power because he is God's servant to bring about life. There is death, there is life. So that you get to Elizabeth in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 7. She is barren, and lo and behold, what does God do? He brings about life from death, from barrenness. So what would you call the birth of Jesus? It is a birth from above. That Mary, not barren in the sense that Elizabeth was, but barren in the sense that no man had known her, There is a birth, there is new life, and that new life in Jesus Christ becomes the sort of fulfillment of all of these promises that the Holy Spirit overshadows her, and here you have one who is called the Son of God. And he ends up being what? He ends up being called the firstborn. He is the firstborn. Romans 8.29, Colossians 1, Rome, uh, Revelation 3, he's the firstborn, he's the ruler, he is the one who gives life, and it's through his death and resurrection that we are able to share in that. Now that's the biblical theological picture of how God works. Why do I give you that theological lecture before we get to John 3? Because you need to understand that this is what Nicodemus should have understood, He needed to know these things. So as you read John 3, you don't read John 3 and read the language of being you're being born again and think of it as some private spiritual experience that Christians need to have in their life. That may be true based upon everything else we read in the New Testament where you need to have a spiritual experience, but that's not really what Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about. How do we know that? Well, there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who has an illustrious history. One who ends up being one of the good guys. He is a ruler of the Jews. So the first point you need to understand about what John is trying to establish here is that he has a symbolic significance as a representative figure, Nicodemus. He is not simply an isolated individual who comes to Jesus and gets a lesson in what he needs. Now the man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. Not by accident, but I believe because of the furore surrounding Jesus and the opposition he already had towards his ministry. As a ruler in the synagogue, on behalf of the Jewish people, he sees him at night where perhaps he will not be noticed and says, Rabbi, we know there again corporate significance. Not I know, we know. He's speaking on behalf of the ruling elite. We know that you are a teacher come from God. And he drastically understates who Jesus is, by the way. 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he clearly has understood that Jesus is performing signs and that God must be with him. Now, what does Jesus do in response? Well, he doesn't say, well, which sign did you like? Which was your favorite? Uh, You know, what do you think about these miracles? He ramps up the conversation in a way that must have shocked Nicodemus, and clearly it did. Because he says, truly, truly, and nothing really makes sense about this, because Nicodemus is perhaps thinking that Jesus is merely a teacher with great teachings, and Jesus is saying, The Christian religion is not merely about teachings. The Christian religion is about something that goes beyond mere teachings. Though it does include teachings, it goes beyond that. He says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. And there's an ambiguity there because what John is saying when he uses that Greek word anothen, he's saying unless one is born again, unless one is born from above, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And John often does that in his gospel, uses slightly ambiguous language that maybe he's speaking about the fact that you have to be born again, but also born from above. Now the question is, what does this mean? Well, Nicodemus takes it to mean overly literalistic idea because maybe he doesn't want to see the spiritual issues and so goes right back to the literalistic understanding. We don't really know. Or maybe he's being facetious here. It's not entirely clear. But he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Nicodemus knows that's impossible. He's not actually saying, you know, can this happen? This would be most interesting, wouldn't it? He's trying to say, what you're saying is impossible. And maybe it is a case that he doesn't want to believe what Jesus is saying. Now, why is that? Well, Jesus responds and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, later on, remember, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. So when Jesus gives this teaching, one should assume that this teaching is already present in the Old Testament Scriptures. Otherwise, why would he rebuke him? And where is this teaching? Well, if you go back a chapter in Ezekiel chapter 36, it's right there. In fact, in verse 25, we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Nicodemus, you don't understand what has clearly been said of what God has promised. And because Jesus is the Messiah, these promises must be fulfilled. So Nicodemus, do you not know? Have you not read? 
is essentially what Jesus is saying here. Now, what does it mean, water and the Spirit? I could tell you all of the various interpretations and arguments and fights that people have had over this, but I think likely it refers to the connection between the fact that Christians who will be baptized with a washing of water and all that that symbolizes will also receive the inward reality of that with the Holy Spirit. That there will be an age of washing, but that washing is not merely limited to the water. It will actually be something whereby the water testifies of a spiritual washing, a cleansing that takes place. So unless you receive the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? Because that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Sinful human nature will always produce sinful human nature. That has been the consistent testimony from Adam onwards. We produce sinners. And because we produce sinners, we produce people who by nature cannot understand the things of God. Paul says this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, that those who are in the flesh cannot perceive spiritual realities, that they are blinded and don't understand. So that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I was... Uh, as you know, in Lethbridge, and then I drove back that night, and the next morning in Calgary, I met a friend for breakfast, and uh, he's uh, an endocrinologist uh, and teaches you know, at university, medical school, um, trained at Harvard. His, his resume is really quite off-putting because it, it just goes on and on and on, and I don't like that, uh, mainly because I... Still haven't managed to get together a resume. But we were sitting and having a discussion, and I wanted to pick his brain about the transgenderism going on. As an endocrinologist, probably few people more qualified to speak of the, the issue on a medical level. And he told me several horrifying stories, by the way. But the first words out of his mouth were not the stories. The first words out of his mouth were, this is a spiritual issue. This is a doctor who is saying this is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. Why? Because what Satan does is Satan loves to counterfeit. And the way in which Satan counterfeits through the ages is remarkable with counterfeit gospels, but also counterfeit new births. You see, a lot of people do want a new identity. A lot of people do want change. A lot of people see something fundamentally wrong with themselves and know deep down they shouldn't be the way they are. But what Satan does is he takes that reality and perverts it to such an extent that we are giving new births, so to speak, as a society to people who are trying to become men when they are women and women who want to become men and it's a counterfeit. It is Satan's masterpiece of taking the gospel and perverting it to such an extent. It's a spiritual issue. 
Because the only change that's actually going to solve the fundamental crisis of what every human being faces in opposition and enmity to God is one from above, one by the Spirit, one where your identity really is changed. You know what? You do need to change. You do need to stop being who you are by nature, and you need to be born from above. You need to be born again. That's the change everyone needs. The change so many today, and perhaps it'll be even more, is a change that is fundamentally warping them in the worst possible way. Because that which is flesh will only give birth to that which is flesh. And that which is spirit from above will give birth to that which is spirit. Now, you see... Jesus has to say to Nicodemus in verse 7, Do not marvel. Do not be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, do you know what's interesting in the way Jesus speaks to Nicodemus here? That you is in the plural. Israel at this point is spiritually dead. The religious leaders are dead. And you see this by the way in which Jesus relates to them in the gospel accounts and in John. They are dead. And so what Israel needs is the reality of Ezekiel chapter 37. They need a spiritual resurrection. They need spiritual life. They need it corporately. This isn't about, oh, well, what do you need, brother? You need to be born again. No, this is greater than that. It's way beyond that. It's that there's a whole group of people proclaiming to know God and yet they do not know God. There's a whole grand group of people claiming to have spiritual life when in fact they're dead. And so Nicodemus, you as representative of Israel, you need to have resurrection life. And no sooner has Jesus said this to Nicodemus than John's gospel starts to unfold in chapter 5 where it's all about resurrection life. See, Jesus knew how to speak to individuals about what their needs were. That's why in the end of chapter 2, Jesus did not entrust himself. Though many believed in him, he did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. So then he starts to speak to Nicodemus, knowing what is in Nicodemus and what Nicodemus needs. Then he speaks to the woman at the well. And you go through John's gospel, and Christ is always speaking to people about their greatest need. And for the woman, it's no different, actually, than Nicodemus. It's just different language based upon the context. What does she need? She needs streams of living water to flow into her life and give her what she's been lacking by trying to find it in men. What does Nicodemus need? Streams of living water. He needs to be born from above. What do you need? What do I need? Everyone needs the same thing. You need to have streams of living water flowing into your life from above. Otherwise, you will not change. You cannot change. And you will remain in that state of sin and misery as long as you have life in your blood. Now the nature of the new birth is illustrated by the wind which blows where it wishes in verse 8. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or from where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying this is ultimately, because it is a birth from above, it is ultimately the work of God alone. 
Now, somebody did say, by the way, uh, to Spurgeon once, I believe this is how the conversation went, and I'm summarizing, is that doesn't this discourage people? If this birth from above is from God and not something that we can affect of ourselves, wouldn't this discourage people? To which Spurgeon replied, that if it discourages you from thinking that you can save yourself, then that is precisely the discouragement that you need. Because if it was left to us, flesh gives birth to flesh. I don't know what else could be written here to make it abundantly obvious to us that we cannot affect the change that is necessary for us to be spiritual beings. And yet as you read on, you do see what we can do in light of this great reality. Because if you get to verse 13, Jesus speaks about no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And really what Jesus is saying is that I have every right to say these things because I alone have been face to face with God. I alone understand the Father. I alone have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge contained in what I say. And so when I say these things, there is an authority behind them. And no sooner has he spoken about the glories that he once had. No one has ever been in the face of the Father except Jesus Christ. What does he then do? He then speaks of his suffering and his shame. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, that's where this idea comes from. The Israelites were being bitten by serpents and they were dying as a result. And so when Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, anyone who looked to that serpent would actually live instead of dying. And as he lifts up that pole, all you have to do is look. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And you say, oh, well, then if it's from God, what can I do? And the answer is you must look to Christ. That has always been the way in which people are saved. Look to Christ. Look to the one who is lifted up. And it is interesting to me that John, again, using what I think is ambiguous language here, he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And lifted up language is usually associated with exaltation. And exaltation, in the case of Christ, always is spoken of in the context of His humiliation as well. If you go back to the fourth servant song, Isaiah chapter 52, it starts at the end, and then 53, which we all know well, you'll notice, Behold, my servant shall what? shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. There has never been anything more grotesque and shameful and horrific in the history of humanity than the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet at the same time, there has never been anything more glorious and splendid than the crucifixion of the Son of God. 
because it was not merely the crucifixion of the Son of God, it was the crucifixion of the Son of God who would be raised, who would be the firstborn from among the dead, and who would give resurrection life from above to all of his people. You must be born again because Jesus himself was born again from the dead. And you must enter into that resurrection life, Nicodemus, Israel, Vancouver, Faith Church. Otherwise, you have no life in you. Now, uh, I'm going to end with just one point because I only have one point. You thought I was getting rid of some of my points. No, just one. John understands this, and later on he's writing to Christians, and I, I want you to maybe, if someone could just agree to do this for me, I'd be most appreciative. If somebody could go home today and you open up 1 John and you, you get to chapter 2, you get to chapter 3, you get to chapter 4, you get to chapter 5, and I want you to count how many times John is using the language of being born again, born from above, the seed of God giving new birth and new life. And he connects every one of those in one way or another, either to obedience, love for God, love for your brother, looking to Christ. In other words, when you are born from above, it fundamentally revolutionizes your life. It's not a little shift here or there. It's like a massive, massive shift whereby your thought patterns, your affections, your desires are changed and you become a child of God and you start to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. You love His children. You love God. You pray. You look to Christ. Everything changes. It's not enough to simply come to church and have a small little affection here or there. Or a little change here or there. No, your life is changed when you are born again. It's changed radically. And we have to insist upon the power of the new birth. Not just the new birth, but the power of the new birth and what that means. And how many Christians are there sitting in pews today where if Jesus were to speak to them, He might need to say to them, you you need to be born again. You need to have resurrection life in you from above. And you need to repent and see that those serpents of this world will devour you and you will die unless you look to the one who is high and exalted. The one who is on the cross who can alone deal with your problems that you will never be able to deal with and give you true life from a barren womb. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the hope of resurrection life that we can be born again, born from above and born to life everlasting. We pray this may be true of each and every one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen.